0: Just remember that everything you do in this, no matter how hard you work on it, it turns into poop. Modern.
1: Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitter's acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern bar cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and today I've got a great interview for you with a friend of mine, Chef Matt Finarelli. See, one of the things that cocktails and great food have in common, especially in the home environment, is that they so often use the same flavors, ingredients, and techniques. So it makes sense that we should talk to a pro in the food industry to see what insights we can gain into our home bartending projects. But first, I want to give you the opportunity, as always, to make yourself a drink. Today's featured cocktail is an old favorite, the gin and tonic. And the reason I want to focus on this classic is because later in the episode, Chef Matt tells the story of how he learned to make what he claims to be, the world's best GNT. and Don't worry, I'm not going to spoil that particular secret this early on. you got to work for it. So instead, I'm going to focus on a few things you can do at home to kind of jazz up your standard gin and tonic. Like so many classic cocktails, the beauty of this drink is in its simplicity. A clear spirit, tonic water, and a squeeze of lime. That's it. And so when you're looking to put a new spin on something with so few moving parts, you gotta get creative. The first thing you can do is obviously mix and match your gin. That's kind of the bedrock upon which this cocktail rests, so if you swap out the gin, it's a whole new animal. Try something that's not Beefeater, or Tanqueray, or Gordon's, or whatever your standby is. Not say that those aren't amazing options, but what about something local? What about something less dry and maybe more floral as the trends are kind of leaning toward these days? And I don't know, if you want to go completely out the deep end, swap in a barrel-aged gin or some other strange gin project. Um, you know, maybe a Navy strength or um, something that comes to mind right now is a local distillery here in D.C., Green Hat, uh, has something called a gin of it, which is a gin distilled in the style of an Akvavit, which is a Scandinavian spirit. And so they've got a particular botanical profile that makes it similar to spirits made in the Scandinavian region. So look for something unique like that, and that will probably drastically alter the flavor profile of what you've got in your standard G&T. Then there's a the tonic water. Yeah, the store brand, Canada Dry, they, they make fine options, but what about something a little bit more premium? Fever Tree and Q Tonic are pretty widely available steps up from the stuff that usually comes in a plastic bottle. And then there's Citrus. Question, is there an angry god waiting to smite you down if you opt for grapefruit or lemon instead of the classic lime? Probably not. Yeah, you're going to draw fire from a few purists, but who cares? This is your show. It's your drink. Finally, and I think this is where a lot of folks take the opportunity to get truly creative... Think about garnishes and the method of service what kind of glass are you drinking from how much ice is there what would a nice fresh sprig of mint or basil or cilantro do for the flavor profile and the visual presentation these are a few great places to start when you're in the market for a new spin on the gnt but if you've got other ideas, feel free to shoot us an email or tag us on Facebook or Instagram with a little picture and show us your unique take on the gin and tonic. But now that I've got the ball rolling and you're thinking about flavor, I'm going to let Chef Matt take it from here. Some of the things we discuss in this episode include how a boy raised in a traditional Italian-American household would later apply his technical cooking skills to mastering whimsical Thai flavors, the essential techniques that every home bartender should work on when starting their journey into mixology, similarities between jazz musicians and expert chefs and bartenders, and, importantly, what to drink to order when an Alaskan meteorologist is tending bar. All this plus a live cooking and cocktail demo mid-show where Chef Matt shows us how he balances flavors on the stove and in the glass. I told you we were working on some cool new episodes, and this interview is the proof in the mixological pudding. So, without further wordplay on my part, please enjoy this fascinating interview with Chef Matt Finarelli. Chef Matt, welcome to the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So can you just briefly introduce yourself to uh, the listeners out there and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, My name is Chef
0: Matt Finarelli, and what I do is I teach cooking classes in people's homes, and I also do personal chefing. That is, I uh, cook meals for my clients during the week and then deliver food to them so they have food to fill their fridges throughout the week. So... I sort of think of myself as the person who does almost anything on a culinary level. However, you want it, whether I'm cooking for you or you're cooking with me, uh, I'm all I'm there for you to be your chef.
1: Amazing! And where are you based, just so people can get a sense geographically? Oh sure, I'm I am from and live in Northern Virginia.
0: I live in Burke, Virginia, right now, but I do the whole DC area, uh, Maryland, DC. Uh, Northern Virginia, everything. I'm I have have a car and I'm willing to travel.
1: <laughs> nice, yeah. Uh, when you and I met, you were kind of manning the demo stage at the an event called the Taste of DC, mm-hmm. and. It was really interesting to watch you out there because you kind of you were very direct about the fact that you were kind of falling on a grenade by taking um, some of the demos where people were just walking in. There weren't that many people around. You were just up there. Just didn't matter if anybody was listening. You were just. You you were getting people excited and kind of just letting them know that there was some fun stuff going on and it was fun to see like as you kind of got through your demo that the crowd started slowly uh, gathering mm-hmm. in and, and
0: I like I like the thing I like to think of myself in those stages as the carnival barker uh it's you know when people are just coming into a giant food festival early in the morning they're thinking oh yeah I got to go to this cart and ooh the lines are short over at that cart and here I am giving a cooking demo. And I know that you know there's no one there at that stage. I, mean, I know it's empty, so I gotta give the biggest, loudest, most audacious kind of presentation that I possibly can, and it's, it's, it's what I love to do. And I've, I've told them, it was my fifth year doing the Taste of DC, and I said, don't schedule anybody for the early morning and don't schedule anyone for late at night. I'm happy to be that guy who does those demos, the ones where you may or may not have anyone listening, because it's my job to make sure there's a crowd for when the other people come on. Like when you did your demo, I wanted to make sure there was a crowd there and I loved it. And I I always pride myself on that. I start the morning, there's no one in the chairs. I do a demo and no matter what, I got like 30 people by the end. Yeah, it's Uh, fantastic. I I just, I love that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so uh, you're a chef, you love educating. And how did you decide to take this track as a career?
0: Sure, well I mean the track of becoming a chef in and of itself was my second career as well. I went to college and majored in environmental science and public policy, and I worked for World Wildlife Fund for eight years, uh, which was what my degree was about. I was actually following my degree, but I s- took a class with Fairfax County Adult Education. It was on home electric wiring, and they asked at the end, "Hey, can you teach anything?" Now I've cooked all my life, and I knew, you know, raised Italian and an Italian family, so I knew how to cook Italian food. So I for some weird reason, I wrote down, "Yeah, I could teach Italian cooking." And I'd not been to culinary school. I was not a chef. I just felt I could do this, and they took me up on it because the guy who taught their Italian cooking classes was opening a restaurant, and They said, "Oh my God, you know, we need an Italian chef," and you wrote down, "You're an Italian. Do you want to teach a class?" I'm like, "Why not?" So here I am, working for World Wildlife Fund during the day, and I'm teaching cooking classes at night, and I loved the cooking classes. So I started going to culinary school two years of that at night and then started a new career working in restaurants and I worked my way up through local restaurants had a great time and great experience working in restaurants but the last restaurant I worked at which I helped open also taught cooking classes and I realized wait a minute back to the beginning it's the classes that I really love I love teaching people about cooking that's where the real passion is so I quit my entire restaurant career and started this business of teaching cooking classes, going into people's homes and just teaching whatever you want to learn. And I I thought I could make a living at it, but it exploded. I mean, it has just over-exceeded my expectations uh, to levels that I can't believe. And my customers and my fans have been really, really good to me. Uh, and I, I just love what I do. I really enjoy this.
1: That's good to hear. I mean, the restaurant game definitely seems to take it out of a lot of people, and uh, you know, coming up through culinary school, through, you know, I'm sure there was some line cooking in there mm-hmm. and some prep and some uh, sous chefing in there. And it, I, I just, it's an extremely grueling thing to go through. And uh, it's really nice to hear that on the other side of that, you've got something that's kind of exceeding your expectations. So that's uh, definitely congrats on that. Oh, and, thanks.
0: Oh, I, I, I just feel very lucky that everything has worked out uh, the way it has, that I can run my own business set my own schedule, and do what I love. I mean, what more could I ask for?
1: Yeah. So uh, one of the things I kind of want to dig into here, um, we know that uh, the audience of this podcast is a home home bartending yeah. aficionados or kind of people who are looking to learn more about cocktails. Um, first, as as we know, like there's so many different crossovers between cooking and cocktails. It's, mm-hmm. it's all kind of surrounding flavor. So I'm interested to learn more about you know, you said you started off with the Italian food, kind of want to talk a little bit about the flavor, your journey through flavor as you learned more about cooking. And then eventually at the end of that, you know, maybe we can come to how you started incorporating cocktails into sure. your, into your cooking. Sure. I think that, uh, Flavor-wise, I, I was
0: raised, you know, just to be very exact, very technique-driven uh, was the way that I was taught to cook at first. Uh, my mother was the one who really pushed forward, you know, the concept of technique-driven cooking. And it's a great background that everyone should have when they're cooking. But it wasn't about experimentation. And, it, you know, that's not, where, and that's not where anyone should start, quite frankly. You should start with the basics and learn those things. But then what happened was I learned how to cook Thai food. And that's when everything changed for me uh, as a chef, and it was Thai food has very simple techniques. There are not a lot of incredibly uh, difficult things when you're making Thai food. The difficult part is getting the flavors right, balancing everything perfectly. Because uh, Thai food is about contrast. I like to think of it as sort of because Thai are Buddhist, it's the Buddhist middle path. You put in the extremes, like the Buddha lived in his life and it all comes back to the center. So there's spicy, but there's cooling. There's sour, but there's sweet. There's green, but there's red. There's crunchy, but there's soft. Everything contrasts everything else in Thai food. And you can only learn that by experimenting with the flavors and trying things that you've never tried before and learning about ingredients that you, you wouldn't even recognize if you came across them. And that's when I felt by marrying the technique that I had in the background of how I was trained with this experimentation of flavor and contrasting flavors was when I really started to expand as a chef and my, my culinary abilities really started to take off. Um And then that leads to me to cocktails. Um, You know, cocktails are all about balance as well. Getting that balance of the bitter and the sweet and the sour, you know, finding the way those things balance is what makes a good cocktail. And it wasn't until I learned that, you know, and from people like you, (laughs) where I hear these things, I'm like, is that what I'm doing? You know, oh, it's about balancing. That's it. And it just sort of expanded how I could then make cocktails. And so whenever I'm inventing a cocktail recipe or working on one, I think of, okay, The bitter is there, but how do I make it balance with what else is there? You know, it's got to be in balance. It can't just be there for the sake of being there. It's got to balance what else is there. And that's how I think of cocktails and how I think of flavors.
1: For sure, yeah. And what we're going to try and do listeners, whether successfully or unsuccessfully on the audio side for me, (laughs) uh, is we're going to try and actually after we record this, we're going to go into the kitchen and we're actually going to get our hands dirty a little bit. So hopefully,
0: hopefully that'll work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we'll hopefully get uh, some good sound in there. I mean, it's my kitchen, which is not exactly a professional cooking studio
1: uh, yet, (laughs) but it's maybe someday. But yeah, so we'll have some recipes for you, hopefully. And, um, you know, you'll get to hear us talk about these things and these the the idea of balance and these different techniques you can use to achieve that balance as we're actually making this stuff.
0: Yep. I'm going to make some, a little bit of Thai food and then I'll show you a cocktail and it shows you about how
1: I balance things. Fantastic. I cannot wait. (laughs) So what I wanted to show you
0: here in the kitchen now that we're here is I want to show you what I think about a balance when I'm talking about balancing all of those distinct flavors. And one of the best ways to do that is with a Thai curry. So what I've got here is just the basics. I got my coconut milk, my homemade Penang curry paste some chicken and some kefir lime leaves just sort of simmering away there. Smells good? Smells
1: really, really good, yeah. Now we're
0: going to throw in just some vegetables, and this is where the concept of the difference between getting the exact amounts and getting what feels good uh, comes into play. I'm going to throw in some tomatoes that I had there, some uh, some Napa cabbage that I shredded up, Mm. some soybean sprouts, and you'll notice I'm not measuring anything, I'm just getting some handfuls of it until it looks like it's in balance with the curry paste you know, uh, the curry sauce, excuse me, that I have in there. When everything looks balanced, then I know I have it, you know, you don't need the measuring cup at this stage, Fewer more bean spreads.
1: Yeah, right, and that's, it's nice to be able to adjust on the
0: go like that. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I think that's sort of the focus, is you get good at that, that's experience versus technique, and it just takes time, you know, don't be, don't be worried, and I never, I think the biggest fear that people have is with making a mistake when they're cooking, and it's, don't worry about making a mistake, you can always call dominoes, if everything goes wrong, order, Order pizza, call Grubhub,
1: get someone to deliver you some food, and then try again tomorrow. Okay? Right? Yeah. And, uh, I, if that fear of making a mistake is, is so crippling. And, um, like if, that's, if that is your chief fear, I think that is the first thing to learn to conquer before you try and learn to make the cocktails. Learn to conquer that fear of making a mistake.
0: Make a You're going to pour some stuff down the drain. It's okay. Uh, the, things happen. And just try again. Get back up on that horse. Okay. I've stirred in a little bit of fresh Thai basil.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank
0: you. Thank you so much. And so colors, that's another contrast. Uh, And I don't know, uh, let me ask you, maybe you know more about this. What about contrasting colors in cocktails? I mean, is that a thing that you see
1: a lot of? I mean, the only thing I can think of is a tequila sunrise. That's about the only one that comes to my mind. Yeah, it's really interesting. Color in cocktails is a really interesting concept because obviously the aesthetic flavor experience incorporates visual stimuli. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's important to think about color when you're serving, maybe not... Before flavor, but certainly alongside it. Uh, Some really interesting cocktail ingredients that do add great color are obviously um, aperitivi, uh, tend to be very red. So, Campari Mm -hmm. and Aperol, really great examples of colorful things that make the cocktail pop. Um, Other things in the cocktail world, they tend to be liqueurs for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Chartreuse, green chartreuse, and yellow chartreuse. Um, There's another uh, cocktail. bitter liqueur called Suze S U Z E, which is a mm. gentian liqueur. Oh. It's bright yellow. Uh, so if you've ever if you've ever had a white Negroni, that's usually made with Suze, and instead of being white, it's actually yellow. It's it's yellow. Um, so it's so like, so like striga, that kind of yellow? Yeah. It's very, like, Striga and Galliano are also great, great great examples. Those are more Anise flavored and right. the um, the Suze liqueur is actually it's a little bit more lemony and oh. bitter. It's got that very um, Precise and pure gentian like strong kick to it. Cool. Yeah. So I think if you're looking to add color to your cocktails, I think herbal infusions and a well placed liqueur are where you got to go. Where you gotta go. Okay. For and, anyone listening, uh, striga is my secret ingredient to tiramisu. <laughs> that's that's a, that's a really nice Easter egg because anytime <laughs> anytime a chef gives out his special secret, uh, it's you know that's that that's how you know you're. You're
0: in. You've either, you've either uh, given me something to drink or you've paid me to learn how to make tiramisu and I show you <laughs> what my secret ingredients. But Strega is the ingredient.
1: Nice. Okay, so, so we've we, built this beautiful thing. Next.
0: What I want you to do is I want you to try this. Yes. At this stage. I give this a taste. This is with the curry paste, all the vegetables, the chicken. all cooked in. And everybody's playing together. Okay, I'm
1: going to try. But I haven't seasoned it
0: yet. I haven't balanced the
1: flavors yet. But I want you to see the before and after. I'm going to try and get a representative bite. I try to okay. do that when I'm tasting. So I'm sure. trying to get a nice little representative bite in there. Absolutely. I'm just going to taste the sauce. so I don't take too much of the good
0: food. It's mm. nice. Then it, I told you, like, everyone's always excited at this stage because they've made a curry.
1: But now we're going to season it. And now I'm going to show you how we balance the flavors. Yep. I'm getting, um, obviously the coconut is a very strong flavor in there. It's nice and buttery. Right. Um, and I'm getting a little bit of heat. Mm-hmm. Um, the kefir lime leaf, which you put in there to start, has definitely really well integrated into there. Um, and I think we do need a little bit more seasoning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now to season it in Thai
0: cooking, there's balance, right? And the balance, I'm gonna balance sweet, sour, and salty. We're gonna use palm sugar for sweet, we're gonna use fresh lime juice for sour, and we're going to use, of course, Thai fish sauce for the salt. So we're balancing all of these uh, flavors. It's not about just throwing in some salt and calling it a day, it's about balancing the all mm-hmm. these flavors. So we're gonna put in a little bit of the fish sauce. Yeah. We're going to put in, I probably need a little bit more of that once it's so all said and done, but, you know, you can always add more. You can't add less. Right. <laughs> same thing f- with
1: cocktails. You can't take it out of the cocktail mixer once you put it in. Once
0: it's in there, you're done. <laughs> and a little fresh lime juice, and definitely fresh squeezed lime juice. Yes. I'll just keep it in the cool bottle. All right. Let's stir all that in. So now I've put in some sour, salty, and sweet into the exact same dish. I've done nothing else. I'm not adding any other herbs or spices or anything like that. Just want to give, give the palm sugar time to dissolve and yeah. whenever you're seasoning, the most common seasoning mistake is people will taste it immediately after seasoning. Give it a few seconds, give it a stir, few stirs, really make sure it distributes and does its job before you try again because then you may, get, you may take a taste of an unrepresentative spot of your dish and then you add more salt and you realize, oh wait, that first edition was enough and now you've added too much. Okay, let me just take a quick taste. Wow, that is, <laughs> that's almost night and day. Isn't that amazing? Right. It was good before, and everyone likes that. But just a quick dash of those three things now the lime really pops. The salt is holding the coconut flavor throughout, and there's a sweet note in the background, which I need to touch more of. Right. But that's how we balance. That's how we balance a Thai dish. It's it's all about knowing what your flavors are and knowing how to bring them into harmony in a dish and it always gives you that wow when you get it right it's always yeah. like oh my goodness wow
1: that's perfect. One of the other things I notice about this flavor is that the first taste I got of this was delicious but it was almost very homogenous this flavor kind of evolved on my palate and oh, so tasty. it's still it's still there and it's kind of doing different things now than it was when I first put it in my mouth because you're right that lime juice really pops but now we've got that kind of Savoriness of the fish sauce and the sweetness of the the palm sugar that are still kind of dancing on on the back of my palate. Well put. I'm going to have to steal that. <laughs> that's very well
0: put. Thank you. Well, so that's my trick for uh, making a uh, beautiful curry and how to balance flavors
1: uh, in Thai food. Amazing. Well, no. thank you for sharing that with us. No. And pleasure. Do you have any um, cocktail? I do. I do. I,
0: I can't. I can't possibly get away with uh, doing a cooking demo on a cocktail podcast without doing a cocktail for y'all. So now the cocktail I'm going to do is a play on a Manhattan, which is a very nice cocktail. But uh, I always felt like uh, a Manhattan, which is mostly rye or some sort of whiskey uh, and sweet vermouth, uh, it was, you know, you had your spice and you had your sweet, but, you know, and then maybe you put a shake of a bitter on top of it and just a hint of bitter. I decided I wanted to go more bitter and I wanted to bring in something like a Campari. Right. And so my ratio in this one is I'm going to do two parts, uh, rye. I don't have that cool flicker. Or and I'm going to do one part, Campari. So I'm going to really bring the bitter into this cocktail in a much bigger way. I just find that's a much, uh, For sure. much more exciting thing than and just a tiny little quarter part of the sweet vermouth.
1: Okay. So that's a Four to so, so yeah, that's a if that's like that's one, an eight to four to eight. eight to four to one.
0: Yeah, that's so. a better way to think. And same a quarter part of the uh, maraschino liqueur uh, Luxardo is the one that I use because I'm having trouble finding any others around here. So if this is yes by default that's going to be the one we go with. Beautiful. Give it a quick stir, cocktail spoon. We'll stir over ice.
1: We'll strain this guy into a glass beautiful and I like that the core of this cocktail is the Manhattan ratio it's that two to one ratio of the whiskey to the fortified whatever which in this case is the aperitivo but you've still got the sweet vermouth as kind of present as as the you know Manhattan traditionally does and now you're adding some bitters which Mm -hmm. are also present in the classic. Manhattan.
0: Right. I couldn't get away from that part on the Manhattan. the The bitters over the top, and I do a mixture of just like uh, aromatic bitters and orange bitters. Mm-hmm. I throw in uh, one of each, only because I just I couldn't make up my mind which one I liked better. Mm-hmm. And then I just one day I was like, Screw it, I'm gonna try both. And I loved it. I loved what it did. Take a taste. Tell me what you yeah, think. Please. So, do you have a name for this? Uh, no, it's so new. <laughs> I haven't I haven't put a name to this one yet. And I'm not gonna name it after myself because I'm not that. I'm not that kind of guy. So, uh, you know, it's mm-hmm. really just, you
1: know, it's my Manhattan. I wow. mean, with Campari, what the heck is this thing? What, what kind of a... That's very Manhattan- cool. And you know what the strange thing is? I would, when I saw the different ingredients going into this, I didn't expect it to come out tasting so much like a Manhattan. I was expecting more of a Negroni, more of that kind of bitter, even kind of orangey take on it. But I think the fact that you threw in the quarter ounce of the Luxardo Maraschino Liqueur mm-hmm. and put in the aromatic bitters in addition to the orange bitters kept it from going too far toward the orangey kind of aperitivo side of things and kept it more in that vermouthy kind of deep and dark spectrum where you expect a Manhattan to be. I didn't
0: even know I was doing that. <laughs> I just I just that's uh, see that's where my naivete on cocktails comes through. I was trying to find something that appealed to me in my love of Negronis and had that bitter and yet I also love the Manhattan, and I just I felt like I was trying to balance something out, and this is sort of where I ended up. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I really think it's a lot of fun. I think it's a really nice uh, sort of interesting cocktail that. I I I just got to have to name it at some point.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, sometimes it's like, uh, you know, you don't want you don't always name the baby at the hospital. Sometimes you want to get the baby <laughs> home, see how it is, make sure it's good, and then give it a name. <laughs> Well thank you. So I'm glad you enjoy it. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Let's go and talk some more about cocktails and chef stuff and whatever else we can come up with. Sounds good. good. Really cool story learning how you moved from a very traditional kind of Italian technique driven approach to food and then learned this, uh, kind of more experimental and polarized, like balanced through the, through opposites, um, Mm -hmm. with Thai food. Um, what are some interesting flavors in cocktails that you tend to enjoy working with?
0: Oh, definitely without question for me, it's bitter. I mean, I love working with bitter because it's one of the hardest flavors to work with. Um, it's it's so difficult to get bitter right. Uh, when bitter goes even just a hair over, it becomes just repulsive to people, as, as it should be. I mean, it's just bitter is tough to work with. But when you get bitter right in a cocktail, it's phenomenal. It opens up everything. You know, when you get that Campari element in there and it's just, oh my God, it's in balance with everything else. This is fantastic. That to me is when you've really gotten a masterfully done cocktail. And the same is true with food. Um, when you can balance bitter in a recipe, uh, and a lot of people are scared of bitter, like, but when you're putting in radicchio and endive and things with big, bitter green flavors and dandelion greens, oh, you can just, you can destroy something. But if you throw it into a risotto where it just melts into the background and there's just this lovely bitter note hanging out there, I mean, it's just fantastic. It's, it's one of my favorite flavors to work with only because it is very challenging and incredibly rewarding when you get it right. Mm. Um, now, that's the broad stroke answer. That's you know that's painting with broad strokes. Bitter, you know, that's a big thing. As far as flavors to work with, like you know things that people might see out there. One of my favorite things to do with cocktails is to play around with herbs, um, and specifically, I love playing around with different types of mint. And I don't just mean like spearmint, peppermint, but we have to remember that basil is a member of the mint family. So basil is mint also. And so anytime I see a cocktail recipe and it says add mint, I say, well, why not Thai basil? Or if it says basil, why not spearmint? And, you know, twisting those things around uh, in that kind of, you know, what is a good substitution? You can really surprise somebody. Uh, You can really take something to a different level. And now suddenly I had a cocktail that was so Italian and because it was basil. And instead I put in Thai basil and lemongrass and maybe a little bit of lychee syrup in the background for the sweetness. And now suddenly it's a Thai cocktail. And all I've done is just made the most modest of substitutions. And yet everyone will tell me I'm a genius or something like, wow, how'd you think of that? And I was like, I just read what was there and just made little tweaks. And I love that herbaceous kind of twist that that's where I love to work with fun flavors.
1: Yeah. It's really interesting. What you're describing right now is a process that, um, you know, when you have a decent amount of experience like you do, or I am starting to get to the, that point as well. In, in, in my experience of, of bartending, you get people giving you a lot of credit for something that you <laughs> feel like you maybe don't deserve all that much credit for. Um, but it's, it's really cool to be able to walk into a bar or like walk up to a bar setup and kind of like scan the lay of the land see what's available Mm -hmm. and then start getting those ideas um and it's a hard thing to describe um but I, i wonder if there's any Way that you can describe your process, like say, let's let's mm-hmm. maybe do a hypothetical situation. Sure. Let's say you were to walk into a, a bar um, mm-hmm. that was fairly well stocked, right. um, but that the person didn't really know anything about cocktails, and they that, that happened ha- this weekend. Oh, well, maybe all right. Let's let's what what happened? <laughs>
0: okay, so that's that so funny. You, bring, my God, that was just this weekend. The person it was a hotel bar, and I looked at the bottles behind the bar. I'm like, that's that's an okay setup, and so I said, hey. Uh, you know, how about a Negroni, which I love Negronis. So I'm a huge fan. Um, and the guy looked at me and it was sort of a blank stare. And I'm like, okay, well, let's start at the basics of that. You know, let's go with the equal parts of the, well, you know, what's in, you know, the gin and the, uh, and the sweet vermouth. And, uh, and, you know, he was, he was listening to me and uh, finally he Goes over to his boss, who in the crowd. Like, do, do we have any sweet vermouth? <laughs> and no, they didn't have sweet vermouth. So I'm like, okay, you know, how about a gin and tonic? <laughs> and let's just, you know, let's back it off. But if, um, if I were going to try to walk someone through it, what I would, what I would try to do is. You know, I I I was at a point there where I was like, I was not going to walk this guy through a gin and tonic. I was just going to let him do what he was going to do. But if someone was going to ask me like, how would I make a gin and tonic or something like that, I'd work on the techniques of it. You know, I'd make sure you know we're not shaking it. I'd make sure you know that we're uh, you know we're layering the flavors into it, not just you know dumping two bottles simultaneously uh, into this thing. You know, it shouldn't be built like that. You know, there's there's a technique to this, and I I always come back to this in my cooking classes that. Everything has a technique. Uh, then the flavors and the other stuff comes out after that. So learn the basic, and then we'll then we'll start playing around. You know, once you once you've locked it in the simplest version, then you can say, okay, well now I've got gin, I've got tonic. Well, can I try other types of gin? Can I try other types of tonic? Does it have to be lime, or do other citruses work in balance? Uh, can I throw some bitters on top of this to uh, as a finishing kind of thing? Because you've got the tonic doing its aromatics, or you know, what can we do after that? But the technique comes first, uh, and that's, that's where
1: everything is going to work from there. I think the best way to describe what we're talking about right now might be to compare it to music. You know, you go out and you hear a wonderful string quartet playing and you look at them and you're just like, what kind of individual genius is this? And, you know, really that person probably isn't an individual genius. There's somebody who has been playing a long time and they first sat down with their instrument and learned for years and years how to read sheet music, Mm -hmm. which is kind of like reading a recipe book and you know learning certain techniques and recipes. And, and only now while they're playing in front of you do they seem like an individual genius, but really it's because they learned the sheet music first.
0: Right. I think of it like uh, when you go to a jazz club and you see some a group of people making up music, uh, they're, they're making it up on the fly right there. And, and they're fighting against each other, you know, like who's going to come into the lead and who's going to do this. And I want to take this song into this direction, but then the other person fights back and tries to take the song in that direction. And it's brilliant. And you think to yourself, you're like, well, all of these geniuses they've been playing forever <laughs> I mean, and they know what they're doing. And the only reason this works, it's not that they're making it up and they're getting lucky it's because they're all so talented and have worked so hard to learn how to play those instruments that them noodling around on stage sounds good. right? And it's so, there's technique behind all that and then they can improvise and then they can go in different ways. And that's, you know, that's, that's um, what, what I'm trying to say. It's the, it's not that they're just getting up there for the first time and playing because they don't know the, they don't know the words or they don't know the song. It's because they know the songs so well
1: that they can actually get away with that. Right. So we're talking about these techniques. What are, in your opinion, these techniques that build that strong foundation for cocktails? For cocktails? Yeah.
0: Well, I, you know, I, I like to think of myself still as a novice cocktail maker, uh, but I think the one that I most learned that, for me, that opened up everything was the difference between when you shake and when you stir. I mean, when I was first making martinis, I didn't. I was shaking martinis. I didn't know. Uh, I had, you know, I was... I was reading, uh, yeah, thanks James Bond, but (laughs) (laughs) you know, but it's, it was something to learn, you know, and I saw why that you did that and I got to start those flavors. And then I started learning, uh, about, you know, building syrups and when different types of syrups and then all the different types of bitters. I grew up only knowing one type of bitters. I Mm -hmm. didn't know there were all these different, you know, celery bitters. what? I had no idea. And it was, you know, it's just like you're just going, you're rabbit holing and you, you learn one thing and then you learn there's 10 more things to learn. And I think that, but for me, the, the building block was just how do we combine the things in the glass? How do we get them diluted in, to temperature properly? And that's, that's where it all begins after that you know, the concept of layering different flavors and so forth is just where I still feel I am. I'm, I'm still learning about smoked syrups and things. I mean, I, what, you know, I'm still, I am still very novice in that field, but because I have a culinary background, it's not crazy. And I can, I can figure it out. I mean, I went out and smoked some Ribena on my uh, grill the other day just to see what smoked black currant syrup would do to a cocktail. Um, I learned also not to smoke it as long as I did because it made it taste like an ashtray. But hey, you can make a mistake every now and again. Right. It's okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's like one of the uh, the wrong notes that the jazz oh. players are gonna play. There's gonna Woo. be a couple wrong notes in there. Absolutely. Well, uh,
0: this was this was
1: dropping the saxophone on the floor, back. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So stirring versus shaking. Yeah, these these things. I, th- I think I think you're right. I think that the first things you learn: uh, stirring, shaking measuring measuring, mm-hmm. uh, and ratios, yep. um, which, oh are yeah, right.
0: Yeah. Ratios. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Even,
1: even simpler than individual measurements are the ratios of things, right? You're talking about the one-to-one-to-one right. with, with the bartender at the hotel. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, really, it's yeah, a small list.
0: You mean, yeah, that's the thing. You you brought, you brought mentioned this at the Taste of DC, talking about you know the ratios of cocktails, and you brought up the really important point that it's not so much knowing about the measurement that goes in the cocktail, but the ratio of the ingredients to each other. And uh, I was sitting back there thinking that's exactly the same as baker's percentages. Uh, when bakers are cooking and they write down their recipes, they don't write amounts. They just write everything in a percentage as how it relates to the flour. Like the flour is 100%. And then the yeast might be 1% and the sugar might be 23%. And so it's just the ratio of the sugar to the flour, to the yeast, to the whatever. And it doesn't matter what that amount is. It can be a cup. It can be 50 pounds. Uh, but then you just build your baking recipe on those ratios. And it's the exact same thing with cocktails. So knowing that the important thing is ratios because ratios equal balance, that's it. I mean, that's that's how to think of a cocktail.
1: Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, you can, there's so many ways you can formulate that. You can think of it as your ingredients being in harmony with one another, being in conversation with Mm -hmm. one another. Um, you know, like going back to the way you were talking about Thai food, like things kind of tugging in opposite directions, kind of competing with each other. There's so many ways to think about balance and the relationship of the ingredients. Um, but you know, some of some of it just takes a little bit of experience so hopefully hopefully some of the the cocktails that that uh we have here on our our website at modernbarcart.com are, are good starting places for people to to go and then kind of start to play around and mm-hmm. the the end goal is not for you not not for folks to like end up at our website and go there every night when they want a cocktail it's, <laughs> the, it's the goal is to go there when you need inspiration and then use that to kind of make your own way Right. Uh, find your own journey, uh, just kind of, kind of like a, a mini version of what you just described as your your journey through cooking.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I have books with cocktail recipes in them because I, you know, some people have some much better cocktail people than me have done some stuff. So I might as well learn what there is. But then after I've made it five or six times, you know, then I'll start maybe playing with it and seeing if uh, seeing if I can do something fun with it.
1: Yeah, I've got. um I've got kind of a theory I I wanted to run by you. And this is, I I have it in the form of a question, but it's kind (laughs) of a loaded question. So instead of asking the question straight up, I'm going to tell you my theory. And then you can either say, no, that's not quite how it works. Or yeah, maybe there's something to it. But uh, in thinking about food versus cocktails, I think there's obviously many similarities. We've been covering them so far. Um, but I think that there's there's one essential difference. And this isn't my idea. I, I, I kind of took this from a number of different sources as I was reading and doing some research on cooking like culinary art versus cocktail art. And mm-hmm. I think one of the things that chefs have to contend with is the fact that at the end of the day, food nourishes us. It nourishes our bodies. It's like a we don't get food. We die. Um, and, well, I feel the same way about cocktails. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, you don't need it, mm-hmm, right? It's, right? It's people have survived without cocktails, and so I think you know, what chefs always kind of have running in the background is like, is even at these very highly conceptual restaurants where they're serving things that are just like above and beyond what you need to survive, it really does get escalated to the level of art. At the end of the day, people still have to recognize it as food, as nourishment. Mm -hmm. And I don't think cocktails have that constraint. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, so they're, they're kind of, by their nature, a little bit more esoteric, a little bit more whimsical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the ingredients tend to be a little bit more far-flung and expensive mm-hmm. relative to the nutrition they yield <laughs> for your body. So I'm just kind of wondering what your thoughts are on that. Wow. I mean, that's... I, I'll i start it with uh, something that I,
0: I heard a sort of back and forth when I was in culinary school uh, between two chefs. Um, one of the other students uh, in my class was sort of having a tough time making something. I was really getting frustrated. And the, one of the culinary instructors comes up to me and says, don't worry, just remember that everything you do in this, no matter how hard you work on it, it turns into poop. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and another culinary instructor came over and said, well, but you got to take it seriously because everything we do here turns into life. That is true. So food is both. Food becomes life, but it also becomes waste at the same time. Uh, And it's just an interesting way to think of, like, what is the meaning of what we're doing as chefs? And I've always, again, it goes back to that Thai thing of contrast. There's a contrast there in how to view what it is that I do as a chef. Am I I making life or am I making poop? (laughs) And the answer is I'm doing both at the same time, in a way. And so I don't have to take myself too seriously, but at the same time... I am feeding people. They're they're coming to me, and I'm sustaining their life, and that's my job, uh, and that's a big responsibility. Now, when you think about cocktails, I mean, cocktails are like dessert. Um, they're a great addition to any of these meals, but they're hardly a mandatory addition. Um, and I, it doesn't mean though you can't take it seriously. I mean, pastry chefs take their work incredibly seriously and they're incredibly good and I have nothing but respect for them because I can't do that. Um, People ask me, is there anything you don't teach? And the first words out of my mouth are cake decorating because I can't do it and I hate it. Uh, But I respect the to no end people who can. I feel that cocktail chefs are sort of the same thing. They have an incredible wealth of knowledge that they've stored up over the years of how different spirits are made, what flavors they bring to the game, what kind of additions you can do to them to bring everything into balance. But is it mandatory stuff? No, it's it's a luxury addition to any meal, but it doesn't make it unimportant because it's a luxury. It's it's still a, you know, you're watching artists do something really fantastic and we as consumers can really enjoy that. And that's what I love about cocktails. It's not something I need to get every time, but it's something I always enjoy when I do, especially in the hands of someone who really knows what they're doing.
1: Right. And I really like that kind of Venn diagram that we have right now because I think what we've identified is that there's not quite a perfect overlap between cocktails and culinary art. I think there's not a perfect overlap there. But I think that where they do overlap, as we've been talking about earlier, um, is technique is some of the techniques and some of the the flavor principles are are exact they're exactly the same whether you're dealing with thai food or whether you're trying to make a thai spin on uh, an existing cocktail um i think the important distinction to remember for cocktails at least from where I'm standing is that what you're nourishing is different. I feel like with food, you're nourishing at the end of the day, the body. Yes. Also sometimes the emotions, we do have these emotions tied up with food, right? Mom's apple pie, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but with cocktails, I think that kind of gets flipped on its head where what you're nourishing is very much, you know, the artistic sensibilities kind of, you're, you're nourishing the soul, quote unquote, the soul more than you're nourishing the body with Mm -hmm. the cocktail. Um, and I, I don't think, I think that you know both of those things in balance are a really beautiful thing,
0: yeah I mean yeah. you you don't need to pay to go to an art museum and look at art, but you do because it it's good for you and in its own way i mean there's there's just something fantastic about seeing art and being a part of art, and that I guess that's the best way I would like to think of a of a good cocktail um, right it's. And after enough of them, you can see
1: double art. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things I like about chefs, I've always kind of been uh, drawn to chefs as people. They just tend to have interesting personalities. Uh, My grandfather was a chef, Mm. and uh, the first person who ever made me a cocktail was a chef um, back when I was uh, between my, uh, I believe, junior and senior years of college and Mm. just have immense respect for for, uh, them as managers of people and systems and as as, um, kind of personalities that are forced to lead others into battle (laughs) on certain nights. Oh, it's battle. (laughs) It's Uh, a war. (laughs) But out of that comes so many good stories. So I was wondering, since we're here, do you have any good chef stories or cocktail stories or anything that you can relate to our listeners? I have have
0: never-ending supply of stories, Uh, but I have one that I was thinking about before, obviously I knew you were coming over, this isn't a surprise pop-up podcast, and I was thinking of this one that I I love to talk about with cocktails, and it's how I learned to make the world's best gin and tonic. Now, I say that to people at parties all the time, uh, and they look at me like I'm stupid because gin and tonic, it's gin and tonic, ice lime, what? And this story comes from when I was backpacking and hitchhiking across Alaska while I was in college. Uh, with my good friend Chris Rourke. And he and I were just having a great adventure across Alaska. And through a weird series of events, we ended up in the home of a friend of a friend. And he's a meteorologist. And he's got this big party going on. Now... Chris and I, we had stayed. We we're since we we're staying at his house, we'd like mowed his lawn and stuff like that. You know, it's how you repay people in Alaska for p- putting you up. But
1: chase away bears, chase away. Yeah. Ba- well,
0: yeah, <laughs> split some wood and uh, hope that the bears don't show up. Yeah. Uh, so we're sitting there having a good time. He throws this big party. All his meteorologist friends are there, and everyone's having a blast. There's this guy in the corner making gin and tonics, and I'm drinking these gin and tonics, and I'm like how is this gin and tonic so good? You know, I've had gin and tonics before. Why is this so fantastic? So I go up to the guy. He makes another gin and tonic for me. I'm like, you got to tell me, how do you do this? And he's like, I'll tell you, but hang on. And he, he basically says to everyone, Hey, I got to go. And he just, he's not sober. He gets in his car and drives off. You know, it's Alaska, but he, he just drives away. And everyone's like, yeah, okay. The party goes on about, 15 minutes later everyone's like hey turn on the tv they turn on the tv and there's the guy there's i'll call him steve i don't remember his name steve's on tv giving the weather report on the news on the local news (laughs) he's doing the thing so i know he wasn't sober and all this and he's there yeah we got a front coming in this way it looks like the weekend's gonna be this that or the other that's fine back over to you bob and judith and okay great steve have a good weekend 15 minutes later steve's back at the party mixing gin and tonics he's like okay Got that out of the way. Let me show you how you make the perfect gin and tonic. (laughs) So, yes, the active weatherman for uh, Channel Whatever in Anchorage, Alaska, was showing me how to make a gin and tonic. And he showed me his very specific technique. Um, Take take your glass. You fill it two-thirds with ice. You squeeze your lime over the ice. You take your gin, whatever your preferred type is, be it Tanqueray, Bombay Sapphire, Hendrix, you know, a lot of great gins out there, and you pour it gently over the lime that you've dropped into the glass, down in there, and you fill the glass about halfway. Now, it sounds like I'm doing half gin, but you're not, because the ice is in the bottom half, and you've got some open space at the top for your tonic. You take the tonic, and you pour it over the lime, nice and gently, uh, until you fill the glass. So you've almost layered the drink, and then here's his trick. And this was one of the first stirred, not shaken kind of ideas, is he would take a chopstick or something like that, not like a spoon, but something real, a cocktail spoon would work just fine. And you push the lime down to the bottom through all that ice, and that sort of gives you like that spring turnover of the lakes kind of moment where it just gently mixes the two together. And you muddle the lime gently at the bottom, and then just like one gentle little stir. And it delivers an amazing gin and tonic. And I show people this at classes all the time. And, you know, I'm like, you know, who likes gin and tonic? I like gin Okay. I do my thing. I show them. I walk them through it. Hand them the gin and tonic. They're always like, holy cow, this is the best gin and tonic in the world. And it's that fantastic combination of technique. You know, he's got his own little style all put together. And there's just, uh, you know, that sort of a ritualism in the, you know, it becomes sacred through the ritual kind of, you know, the Confucianistic kind of thing that happens. And I, I adore it. Is it, now that I know more things about gin and tonics, is it the best? Yeah, probably not, but it's a fantastic story and a fantastic, uh, it's a fantastic drink because the story is so great that goes with it.
1: I think one of the things that reminds me of, just based on the way you described it, is someone describing not how a meal is prepared per se, but but how the individual portions of the meal are actually plated. Mm -hmm. Because there's, yes, there's the interplay of flavors, but there's also what... A lot of times when you get a gin and tonic, whether it's the, the force of the soda gun, if it's at a bar or something like that, right. it kind of mixes it, – it gets way more integrated than what you're describing. You're describing sort of layers, and then those layers are punctured, but they – so they still kind of exist, and mm-hmm. they're going to kind of morph over the first few sips of the drink. Oh, yeah. So I think that's really interesting, just in the same way that someone who goes to a nice restaurant and they get this beautifully plated thing – uh, yeah, the sauce is going to be all over the plate by the time you're done eating it, but originally mm-hmm. maybe it's arranged in a in a way that kind of emphasizes the differences between what it is, and then you get to kind of choose your own adventure as a diner, um, and as you eat the plate, the uh, ingredients go from kind of like the separate portions of that meal to... gestalt the, the whole
0: you you raise such an important point about plate building there and i this is a message i want i always try to give out to any chefs when i'm helping them consult with dishes and i would also think this would definitely apply to any cocktail makers out there who are listening trying to build something never ever judge your dish or your cocktail by one taste because things change flavors mix you move the sauces around your plate and What might have been a good flavor on the first bite is cloying and overwhelming by the end of the plate. Same thing with a cocktail: as the ice dilutes, as the as the layers, the punctured layers meld. Things by the time you get to the bottom of that cocktail, you may be sick of it. So, eat your whole plate of food before you put it on your menu. Drink your whole cocktail before you put it on your menu. Uh, You got to know how the whole dish works, not just the first bite. Yeah, and if you or make it, <laughs>
1: right, and if you make a cocktail for the first time and it starts off really nice, and then you find it toward the end it gets less nice, that's a trail of breadcrumbs you can follow right. so that you adjust your technique or your ingredients or your ratios the next time. And I think that is actually a really useful piece of advice for home bartenders um, because you are going to find yourself as you experiment with some subpar cocktails so if you're doing a good job with the detective work and you can you know keep track of the way you made it then that is definitely a trail of breadcrumbs you can follow to try and remedy that in the future and improve your skills Mm -hmm. agreed cool so we've talked about a lot of amazing um, kind of tips and stories about chefs and bartenders and food and cocktails here Let's jump into our lightning round right. and uh, talk a little bit more. Ding, so, ding, ding. All right. I'm ready. <laughs> first first question always, what is your favorite cocktail and why? We may have touched on this, but feel free to jump sure, in, sure. explain a little bit more.
0: Uh, from It's the Negroni uh, right now. I mean, these things change. I, I had a period where it was gin and tonic. Uh, I'm in a Negroni mood right now. Uh, I love the bitter. I love the sweet. I love the balance. Uh, I'm finding myself very happy with Negronis in general, but- I, I mean, I love a good Sazerac. I love a good old-fashioned. I, 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 I'll tell you what I order when I go to a place that has a great cocktail menu, and this is also true of dessert. Oh, my God. I just thought of that. It's the overlap of the concept of the for the luxury items. I only want to be surprised. I, I want someone at the top of their game to show me something that I've never seen before. So whenever a waiter comes and says, hey, can I show you the dessert menu? The answer is always yes. I'll always look at a dessert menu. But what I'm gonna look for is I'm gonna look for something I would never have thought of. You know, that's, that's where I learned about Szechuan uh, Sichuan peppercorn spit-roasted pineapple at a restaurant with What? You know, exactly. I, I would never have thought of that. I'm, I'm not a dessert, that was brilliant. And so of course I ordered that, because wow. Um, same thing with a cocktail. I'm, I would go to a cocktail menu and I would look at it and I'd be like, okay, I never would have thought of that cocktail, I want that. Um, so I can learn something. Um, but if I can't find anything on that menu and I still feel I want a cocktail, yeah, I'll probably go with something like a Negroni. Uh, you yeah. know, that, that would, that's usually where I find myself going
1: for sure. One. I do the same thing. I always pick the weirdest, <laughs> the yeah. weirdest thing, and you, you got to do that. Uh, I feel like it, that's one of the great joys, where you—it's—it's you, it's the novelty, it's the absolutely—that's that surprise. It, it's the same thing. You know, you walk into an art museum and you see a picture of a bowl of fruit. How many pictures of bowls of fruit have you seen? What you're looking for is to find a bowl of fruit that surprises and de- delights you. Exactly. Um, exactly.
0: Something that just—I—I I never would have even conceived that that could be a thing that exists. Let right. alone,
1: um, let alone, I get to try it. You know, right now, I get to eat it. That's yeah, fantastic. <laughs> so, part two Negroni, uh, what's your gin? What's your bitter liqueur? And what's your vermouth of choice? Oh, okay. We're not sponsored by anybody on this podcast. Okay. Uh, so, we're.
0: I need better vermouth. Uh, right now, I'm just using the, some real basic vermouth, and I need to learn more about vermouth to, uh, to get better vermouth. So, I have nothing there. I just, whatever I can get my hands on. My gin of choice uh, typically is Tanqueray. Uh, but I love Hendrix too. Uh, I think that both of these are really, really excellent gins. Um, and they make, they make good cocktails. Um, my, uh Oh, Campari. The bitter uh, that I use is Campari. Uh, nice, big, strong. Um, Aperol is... Uh, am I saying that one right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Aperol. Aperol is also nice. It's not as bitter. And mm-hmm. so I keep a bottle of that around for people who... I make them a Negroni and they go... You know, I can see that look on their face like, that's too bitter. I'm like, oh, let me make you another. And I make it with Aperol instead. And that usually light softens it up enough that they, sure. they enjoy that. Um, but I, I, I was told once that when you're thinking of a cocktail uh, whatever the main ingredient is, it better be good. So if it's a gin and tonic, you better use good gin. It's not time to break out the stuff that was $5 a liter. (laughs) You know, it's gotta Mm -hmm. be the big one. So I like to bring a good gin to the show and yeah, like, um, a good quality gin
1: is what really makes the difference to me. For sure. Um, so we got the favorite cocktail. The next situation I like to pose in the lightning round is let's say you got, you were being knowingly marooned on a desert Island Mm -hmm. and you had to pick one spirit, one bottle of spirit. You can choose a brand or just kind of a generic spirit type. Mm. Um, What is your desert Island bottle of spirit?
0: Oh, geez. It would have to be a bourbon. Uh, yeah. It just, because if I can only have one, you know, and that's, I can't mix it and so forth. It would have to be something that drinks straight up really nicely. And, uh, yeah, I'm a big uh, I'm a big bourbon guy in that respect. Uh, I mean, nothing against Irish whiskeys and uh, scotches and other whisk, sour mash whiskeys out there, which are all great. But that little bit of sweetness in the background of bourbon uh, and the balance, a good balance between uh, the smoke, the caramel, the vanilla, all have to be in balance for me. Um, that's a great. That's a great one. I know I'm not answering these lightning ones fast, but I, I have a lot to say on no. these things. No, like r- for example, I had a Pappy Van Winkle. I, I was I went <laughs> You're, you're some... going to
1: load up that whole ship with Pappy Van Winkle. No, no, no,
0: I'm not. And that's the thing is, I'm one of those guys who whereas I'm glad I tried it. Pappy Van Winkle I don't think's worth the price. I'm going to I'm going to just say the emperor has no clothes because it's out of balance. It's got way too much vanilla. It it goes it skews very hard towards vanilla, which is one of the hardest flavors to make in bourbon, so that's why they charge so much for it. Mm-hmm. But it's I'd much rather have a less expensive bourbon that balances the vanilla with the smoke with the caramel. Uh, my personal favorite one that's really in balance right now is Rowan's Creek uh, bourbon from they're from Kentucky, and their balance is out of this world. And it's like a forty dollar bottle. It's not it's not even the highest level one that that distillery makes, but to me they balance it so beautifully. It's my that is my everyday drinking bourbon, and I love it. I would. I would I would gladly take a ship full of that to a desert island. Um, that's that's where I'd want to be.
1: Beautiful. That's a great answer. Uh, bourbon is not an answer we've gotten a lot on on, on this podcast, and you wouldn't think that because no. of how popular it is. Yeah. Um. I'm, I'm sh- my my cooking with bourbon class is one of my most popular classes. Oh, so, for sure, yeah. <laughs> for sure. I think you know what I've I've actually realized is that the more people who live kind of out in the country, I and this is this is a stereotype, but the reason I'm pointing it out is not for that reason but the people who li- tend to live out in the country tend to like bourbon mm-hmm. and then the people who live in DC DC is, has this really interesting phenomenon where it's a gin city yeah, historically mm-hmm. and there's a lot of great gins available mm-hmm. and people love gin in that city just overwhelmingly. So I get a lot of gin people in D.C., of, and then when I'm huh. out kind of in the in the burbs a little bit more in Maryland or in Virginia where we have a lot of great whiskey distilleries, mm-hmm. I get a lot more of that. So, so it's so, gin versus whiskey. Yeah. Big, uh, that's the big fight. City mouse, country mouse. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> so uh, cocktails, the kind of most formidable question we have on this lightning round is the question of if you could have a cocktail with anybody, past mm. or present, uh, who would that be? What cocktail would you drink? Where would you go? And what would you talk mm. about?
0: Well, I tell you, I I thought about this one a little bit, and I think the answer would have to be Ernest Hemingway. And the reason only is, is because he's he's the drinker <laughs> from history. I mean, he's the guy. He lived his life all over the world doing only exciting things, and to me— it wouldn't even be as much like what would I drink with him. It would be like, I just wanna hang out with him and watch what he does and just do what he does. I would I would so not want to direct the direction of anything would go if I had a chance to hang out with him. I would just be like, you know, you be you and I just wanna watch it. It's like a bear on roller skates, okay? You don't know what direction it's gonna go in, and it's gonna be kind of scary, but it's also gonna just be awesome to watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's just gonna be fantastic. And that, you know, whether we're in Cuba, uh, you know, watching boxing matches and drinking uh, daiquiris, um, I love Hemingway's daiquiri recipe. It's just phenomenal, uh, nice, really strong daiquiri uh, with no extra sugar. Uh, it's, it's, it's something to reckon with. Or are we in Spain doing bullfights and drinking the wine of the area there? Are we in Africa, um, you know, watching the sunrise over Kilimanjaro and, you know, whatever's happening there? Uh, I, my answer is I know who I'd want to be with. But what we're doing and what we're drinking, that's his call because that would be what's so exciting about it. And there's just it would always be fantastic. But also the key thing is it would be local and situational. It would really I know he would not be drinking Italian Valpolicellas when he's in Cuba. You know, he would be drinking the Cuban rums and stuff like that. And so it would be it would be local. It would be of the area and of the moment.
1: That's really cool. That's a really interesting approach to it. Um, cause it's, it's not a non-answer you, you, it's, it's, a it's yeah, that local aspect of it. And I think that's very characteristic of somebody who has food and flavor as their, as their, uh, chief driver in their life. Um, yep. because I, I feel the same way, you know, when, you know, drink as the people there are drinking it right. because what other what better opportunity do you have to uh, learn something new right? right
0: exactly yeah if you went to peru and didn't start getting pisco sours you know you, you walk into a bar in peru and ask for gin and tonics you're missing the boat man it's like you're missing out on one of the great drinks of the world made by the best people at making it you know find out what the locals are doing and be a part of that
1: Right. Yeah. That's a really interesting note to take from Hemingway. Normally, it's just, you know, things about life and existentialism. But uh, if you look at how he drank, it really was kind of like he was kind of ahead of his time in terms of uh, being a cultural ambassador, <laughs> being a cultural ambassador
0: with a strong liver.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, so a couple pieces of advice here. Um, we're looking since you've got a lot of knowledge about flavor and cocktails. Um, are there any books that have been particularly meaningful or influential to you, either about cooking or about cocktails? Well, I um,
0: the, the the one great drinking book to me is The Sun Also Rises. I can't tell I'm a Hemingway fan. But uh, actually, I'm going to tell you, there's a movie uh, that I think that's a better answer for me as, as a chef um, on this one, and it's Big Night. To me, Big Night perfectly encapsulates... The life of a chef not from the fact of what happens in the movie per se but it's about um, two r- restaurants and one has this incredibly talented chef but he's so tied up in his own head of making you know what he thinks is right and what he thinks is great which is great that he has no customers and the other sh- restaurant he's making schlock for the masses but it's what the masses want. And so he's full all the time. He is, he doesn't stand for anything, but he's making sure that the the seats are full because he's giving the customers what they want. And every chef comes to uh, their own restaurant idea with their ideas, with their, this is what I want to make. This is who I want to be. This is how I want to express myself through my cooking, express my flavors. But if no one shows up, are you a chef? And, the big night shows that balance and you know, it plays that balance out and I've always, I'm so often confronted with that you know, people will try to book me for parties and I have an idea and I've got to learn to step back and you know, no, it's not my party. It's not, it's their experience and I have to make sure that they're getting what they want out of it while still being true to myself and my own styles. And that's, that's what tears me in both directions as a chef. And yet uh, I feel I've found a balance between those two. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's a really interesting conundrum to bring to the stage of home bartending as well because on the one hand um, when you're a home bartender you have the luxury of hosting people most often who you know and mm-hmm. so you you know um, oftentimes their their flavor preferences and so what you can choose to communicate can actually be personalized to them uh, I think scale though hmm. if you're throwing a larger cocktail party that does become sort of a conundrum it's like okay if the flavors, that I'm going to be putting out for this cocktail party where not everybody here has the same goals or I'm not able to personalize it to the person. Uh, I think a a really useful question for people who are trying to plan a menu like that would be a, what am I trying to communicate with my drinks tonight? Mm -hmm. Because there's most often an answer to that. If you actually ask yourself hard enough is, is what you're trying to communicate. Welcome to my home Mm -hmm. is what you're trying to communicate. Let's celebrate this occasion. Um, you know, is it something else? I th- I think that's a good question to ask, and then you kind of have to step on the other side of it and also ask, are people going to be able to appreciate this who are not me?
0: Right. Uh, I always I always tackle it from the sense of will these cocktails that I've put with this go with the food? You know, if I'm if I really like making margaritas, which I do, I s- squeeze out all my own juice. I love making a good margarita. That's great, but you know, the menu had better be kind of Mexican, you know, or else it just makes no sense to have this huge margarita party. And then we go and do cooking of the American Southwest. And I, you know, bring out, you know, posoles and <laughs> enchiladas and things like, you know, it, you it's know, not necessarily going to be a good good, good pairing. Um, that's not the best example, because that would pair well now that I think about it. Right. Okay, oh, Thai. <laughs> Thais, I, let's yeah. do a Thai. Let's just go with a bit. Go, keep going back to Thai. Um, you know, margaritas and Thai, I don't think that's going to exactly work. So I want to make sure that the flavor profiles and so forth, because I tell I want to tell the whole story. I want to tell the story of the food. I want to tell the story with the cocktail. and I want because they're the sort of the complement. I want them to be the luxury item that uh, matches
1: up. Yeah, I think that's kind of the overarching theme of this episode is that chefs are storytellers and they they tell their stories via technique, via ingredients, and hopefully via a final product that is going to resonate and surprise and. Uh, Please the palate yeah. of the end recipient, no matter who that is.
0: Hey, if they don't like the food, I mean, I don't care how much of your life you put into it. If it doesn't taste good, they ain't coming back.
1: <laughs> right. So, uh, do you have any advice for people who are just starting out their journey as a home bartender? Any anything that you can relate to them that might enhance their journey?
0: I think that the the thought I'm going to because I mean, it's my own story in that respect. Is um, make sure you have like just a few basic tools to get started. And, I mean, we're talking like a shaker, a muddler, and a, and a bar spoon. I mean, and I didn't think a bar spoon was necessary when I first got started. I had no idea. That little swivel that you pour this, you know, it's a great, mm-hmm. great tool. Um, but just get some basics. And don't spend a lot. Because I would say this the same thing for the chef that's starting out. You know, you don't have to get a $400 knife as your first knife. Um, you know, get a good knife but just get a starting one and then start experimenting because you may or may not like it. You know, if you're just starting out, this may not be the thing that you really want to invest all your time in because you can rabbit hole yourself so quickly and suddenly find that you have um, a liquor cabinet filled with 70 or 80 bottles and and you don't know what to do with them because everyone told you, you, you need this, you need that, you need this. Start small, start with the basics, you know, 10 bottles, 10 you know, well thought out bottles can make thirty or forty really good cocktails. So learn those. Start with the basics and your basic techniques. You don't spend a fortune to get started. Just walk into it. And I think your your chances of liking it then are so much higher because you'll find you can crawl and then you can walk and then you can run. And if you try to run, you know, load up a liquor cabinet with, you know, all expensive stuff, 80 bucks, you'll just get overwhelmed and you'll just be like, I don't know what I'm doing. What is all this stuff? Uh, and the malaise will set in. So I, right. I, you know, I'm beating a dead horse with a concept of techniques. Start small, learn those techniques, and then build. Right. And that's that's how I approach anything like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, the chef doesn't go to the market for the black truffles and the caviar. Yeah. Uh, they go to the market for the onions and the celery and the carrots and the bases of the dish. And then, you know, later on, the caviar and the black truffles come out. But that's no,
0: they come to you. Yeah, and they, you know, they, you know you, if you, you lay you. down, if you lay down the groundwork that you know how to work with your onions and your carrots and your celery, people start knowing about you. And then the good stuff comes to you. I don't go out and shop for those great ingredients. People bring them to me. And it's, it's a lot of fun. That's, that's, that's how, you know, you've arrived when people are, (laughs) I want to share my black truffles with you. I want to show you my foie gras that I, you know, and that I found. And that's, you know, it's because I've laid down the groundwork that I know what I'm doing with the basics.
1: Yeah. I think that's a great note (laughs) to end on. Um, just very quickly before we wrap up here, how can people, if they want to get in touch with you, either to requisition your services mm-hmm. as a chef or as a teacher or just to say, hey, yeah. uh, come have a drink with me and tell me some more crazy stories about when you were a chef?
0: I welcome all of those kinds of things. I love to, uh, I love to teach about cooking, and I love to have drinks and tell stories because uh, if you can't tell, I like to talk. <laughs> so <laughs> the best way to get in touch with me is check out my website at finarelli.com. It's spelled just like my last name, so that's F-I-N-A-R-E-L-L-I.com. And once you're on there, you can see all about the different things that I do, and contacting me through the website is stunningly simple. There's a lot of links to my email address. Just drop me a line, and I'm happy to talk with you about it. And of course, you can follow me on Facebook, too. I'm at uh, Chef Finarelli on Facebook.
1: Chef Matt, thanks for being on the show. Oh, my God, thanks so much for having me. It's been great. everybody thanks for listening i just want to remind you that this episode might be over but the journey and the discussion are just beginning if you're excited about the content in this or any other episode please tell us follow us on instagram at modern for recipes and great product tips or stalk me personally at quixologist that's q u i x ologist You can also like us on Facebook by searching Modern Bar Cart or hit us up directly via email by sending a note to podcast at modernbarcart.com. That email address, by the way, is also the one that you should use if you've got any cocktail or home bartending related questions you'd like us to address, or if you think you have a unique perspective on the cocktail world and would like to be interviewed for all to hear. I'll see you next time, but until then, drink responsibly and experiment boldly.